I remember exactly where I was when I first picked up this book and read it. I took it with me to Jamaica, where I was celebrating my 50th birthday with my family. Now, I can't tell you that I read this book. I devoured this book. It wasn't a nice, gentle reading. In fact, you see how worn this copy is? This isn't even the original copy. The original copy has so much underlines. It was unreadable when I was done. I had to get a new copy because that's how I love to read my books. And after I bought this book, I couldn't keep it to myself. We were sharing it with clients. We started using the language of zone of genius, upper limit, and we refer to it so often. And then my clients were buying books for people in their lives. So it is my great honor to have a conversation with psychologist, best-selling author, teacher, Gay Hendricks. I want you to grab pen and paper and be ready to take notes. Welcome to the podcast, Gay. Peak performance and mindset coach Hannah Khan. Welcome back. I make it part of my self-image, and the more I rest, the more I make. Hannah Khan is an extraordinary woman. She has a very extraordinary understanding of how the mind functions. When I was thinking about our conversation, I thought this is going to be a spiritual conversation because the book is about living in your zone of genius. And for me, that's connected to spirit. In fact, you say that, you know, living in that place is its own reward. And on page 18, I just want to read this. You say, when you reach the end of your life and are wondering whether it will all be worthwhile, you'll be measuring whether you did everything you possibly could with the gifts you've been given. Do you feel, Gay, that there's a spiritual component to your work? I absolutely do. Um, I've been a daily meditator for more than 50 years now, and um, it's for me, meditation is much like good breathing or good moving or good being in the sense that whatever you're doing puts you in touch with that pure consciousness inside that's beyond all of our opinions, that's beyond all of our hopes and dreams, that it just is. And one of the things our work is about with the genius zone and conquering your upper limits and that kind of thing is so that you can live in that state of genius all the time. And it's possible. It just takes a little bit of attention. Well, it's possible. And you also say it's a radical idea. It's a radical idea that you can feel good in all areas of your life. Why is it a radical idea? Well, it's why kings don't walk down the street with a big smile on their faces saying, good grief, I've got it made, uh, you know, because it would start a riot. I think, well, if you take the really big picture, look how many millions of years of evolution went into like creating the points on our feet that hurt when we step on something. You know, for millions of years, human beings were walking around stepping on things barefooted and it wasn't good. And so we gradually built up hundreds of pain points on on our feet but you know we don't have as much experience with things going well we don't have as much experience with letting ourselves really feel good for long periods of time it just hasn't evolved yet 
you and I are on the first stages of a new evolutionary movement, like it or not, which is all about learning to have peace for longer and longer periods of time between nations, learning how to feel good for longer and longer periods of time in your body. These are the questions that I started asking myself, golly, more than 40 years ago now. I just, uh, my birthday was this weekend. I just turned 79. And um, we also, this is a big month for us because Katie and I just celebrated the 44th anniversary of the day we met in 1980, January 9th. And so we uh, had a, uh, a tipple of champagne and uh, a high five about that uh, because um, now, as you probably know, the ordinary length of a love relationship, even a marriage, is four or five years in there. So Katie and I have managed to rack almost nine marriages up here since 1980, and it's still going fabulously well. You know, when you were talking about like being at peace, feeling that and how this is so foreign for us for where we are in our evolution, I was just thinking, my gosh, could you imagine a world gay where we all lived in that area pretty much all of the time? I think it would lead to peace on Earth. Oh, well, it, it would, because look how much peace comes into your life and your family when you start living in your genius zone, when you're doing what you love to do and what makes your biggest contribution to the world around you, everybody benefits from that. And that's one of the things that if you go back to when my relationship with Katie started, um, I had just had a kind of a moment of illumination. I'd been in this on again, off and on relationship for gosh, years in 1979. And one day I had this moment of illumination where I realized where relationship problems come from, where mine and everybody else's come from. Somebody stops telling the truth about something and out of not telling the truth about it, whether it's something you did or something you're feeling, out of that you start projecting onto the other person that therefore they are unsafe because I can't tell them my truth it's their problem. They're unsafe. And we start demoting that person in our consciousness. So it becomes less than an equal relationship. It becomes a relationship between a withholder and a projectee, somebody you're projecting onto. And so I realized that what happens is as soon as we stop telling the truth about something, we step into the victim position and then start seeing the other person as the persecutor. And then, of course, the other person doesn't like that. They, they say, wait a minute, you're the persecutor, not me. And everybody gets into, well, here we say at the, the Institute, we say that all problems between couples are a race to occupy the victim position. And once you decide that you're not going to do that anymore, a whole new world opens up. So I made this vow. Oh, the third thing I realized, I said, okay, I'm going to stop not telling the truth. I'm going to start impeccably telling the truth, whether it's I'm angry right now or I'm sad right now or I'm confused right now or whatever it is. I'm just going to be the person in the room that always tells the truth first. And so um, that was my number one vow. My number two vow is I'm going to stop projecting 
and running for the victim position. I'm going to start taking full responsibility for everything that occurs in my life, even if it looks like it's the other person's fault. Wow. So I, I can say more about that in a minute, but that was my first bow. And boy, was there a surge of power out of that because it was reclaiming all the power that I'd given to everybody else. And my third thing, I realized I'd always had problems in relationships, even going back to my teenage years, where I, I felt like I had to make a compromise between my creative self and my relationship self. You know, like in one relationship, but there were several others too. In one relationship, I got criticized because I go in a room for two to, two to three hours a day and write. That's my dharma. That's my passion. That's my career. That's what keeps the lights on around here. And yet, if that's not okay with the other person, if they feel like, oh, that's time you ought to be spending with me, I got that kind of critical feedback in relationships. And I said, I don't want to ever have that again. I want to be in a relationship with somebody who is so passionately dedicated to their creativity that it would never con con what do you call it? It would never occur to them to you know criticize my creativity. So that was my vow in December 1979. The next month, on January 9th, 44 years ago. I walked into a room where I was going to give a talk. I'd written a couple of books by then, and I was going to talk to the graduate students and the professors at a um, school in California called the California Institute for Transpersonal Psychology. And little did I know it, but Katie was standing there across the room from me when I convened the group. And she was getting her PhD there. She was about 30 at the time. She was getting there, her PhD there, but she was also working off part of her tuition by being the movement therapy professor because she was one of the top five movement dance movement therapists in the country. So they, they were very lucky to have a class by her there, which offset part of her tuition. Anyway, I met her during one of the breaks and I had the urge to ask her out for coffee, but I said, you know, I'd love to ask you out for coffee, but I got to let you know this realization I just had. And I, I ran it down for what I just realized. And so I said, I'm only interested in relationships where both people tell the truth, both people take responsibility for themselves instead of blame, and both people are committed passionately to their own creative path. So on those terms, would you like to have a cup of coffee with me? <laughs> <laughs> Boom. <laughs> there ensued about 15 seconds where her eyes rolled back in her head. <laughs> and uh, finally, she came back, though, and then she said, how about lunch? And so that was the beginning of a magical uh, 44 years together. Um, and we applied all the principles of the big leap to our relationship, as as we encourage other people to do, because Every relationship has a genius zone to it. Yeah. And every relationship has upper limits to it. So if you learn about big leap stuff, you're better equipped to go through challenges in your relationships as well as challenges in your own life. When you were talking about the truth, I was thinking not only 
about not, I love this vow of speaking your truth, speaking the truth, but not only to others, but to yourself, because we can't yes. get to the zone of genius if we are pretending that what we really desire doesn't matter or it's no big deal. So we've talked about the zone of genius. For those that are hearing this for the first time, what is the zone of genius? Your genius zone is when you are doing what you most love to do and what you're uniquely suited to do. And you're doing it in a way that makes a contribution to other people's lives as well as to your own. So we're not about some mad genius out in the forest in a hut creating something, you know, just for the sake of it. We're interested in building a movement of people who are doing what they most love to do, what they're uniquely suited to do, and they're doing it in a way that makes contributions to other people. Now, here we quote our one of our mentors, Abraham Maslow. He said, it doesn't matter if you're making a genius soup or, or composing a genius symphony. Both of those are drawing on that same capacity. Here we say genius is has the capacity to surprise you. You have something kind of come out of nowhere when you're in that zone. So, but first think of it as attaining a life in which you're doing what you love to do all day long and what is uniquely satisfying to you. And why that's so important is, well, there's a beautiful old Yiddish saying that says, if you have work you love, you need ask for no other blessing, you know, because it has an effect on everybody. It has an effect on your family. Imagine coming in the door after nine hours of doing what you love to do all day. For sure. Yeah. And so then here's my question, Gay. Okay. So it sounds great in theory, doing what I love, being in that space all the time. So why is it so terrifying that we will go to great lengths to sabotage it? because it feels so good. It has an electricity to it. It has a zest to it. It has an aliveness to it that we are just beginning to cultivate in ourselves as a species. And we're on the front edge of that. So the more we can allow ourselves to experience longer and longer periods of good time in our life, in our relationships, the more we can allow ourselves to feel good for longer and longer, we're contributing to ourselves, but we're also contributing to evolution because, I mean, look how long it took for human beings to grow all the nerve endings of our foot, as I was saying earlier, mm -hmm. to register the pain that we needed to register to keep us from stepping on stuff all the time. And so that took a long time and it paid off because now we have literally hundreds of little tiny points in our feet that register pain. We don't have such an expansive capacity for registering pleasure in your body. You know, you could get somebody to stroke the back of your hand all day long and it might feel good, but it's not going to you know, light you up with uh, ecstasy or anything because we're not wired for it yet. But let's focus on that for the next couple of million years. Let's focus on growing a nervous system that would never dream of going to war. Yes. Because it would, it would interrupt my creative flow. And yeah. if we could get a, a few billion people to agree to that, yay. 
Oh my gosh. Oh, I just love this conversation because I think also what happens is when you're living in your zone of genius, I don't know about you, Gay, but for me, I want everybody to live in their zone of genius. It's like, it's, it's, you just want everyone to have this feeling and to know that it's possible for them. And they don't have to think about take, you don't need to take anything away from anybody. It, it actually multiplies, it grows. So it's, yeah, it's so beautiful. And it's something that you want everyone to experience. And one of the things that though does happen is we hit what you call the upper limit. So I have two questions for you. Number one, describe what the upper limit is. And number two, when was the last time you hit an upper limit? Oh, oh great question. Nobody ever asked me that. Thank you. Well, um, I'll tell you that in a moment, but the upper limit problem is something I started noticing in myself 40 years ago. Uh, people ask me sometimes, how long did it take you to write the big leap? And I said, well, it, it took me about a year to actually write it, but I'd been thinking about it for 30 or 40 years. So it was pretty easy to write because I just picked up on conversations I'd been having with clients over the years. So the upper limit problem is our tendency to sabotage ourselves when things start going better. And the reason we do that is fear comes up after, you know, like if if you're only used to having three good days in your relationship with your beloved every week where things are just flowing and you can't keep your hands off each other and, you know, just everything is going great. But then somebody starts a fight on day four and then it takes you four days to get through that. Well, We've worked with, I think, around 40, 4,500 couples now, last time I looked. And everybody comes in with that problem. Every couple does, as well as individuals. I started noticing the upper limit problem with very gifted people, that these people I was working with in Silicon Valley, they would be the CEO of a company that you know was doing hundreds of millions of dollars worth of business making chips or something like that. But then this person who could do that all week long would go home on Friday night and start the biggest fight with the family that would then take all weekend to repair. I started thinking, why would this guy that I was working with create you know, four days of ecstasy where he's in his, what I didn't know then was called his genius zone, and then mess it all up? on the fourth or fifth day. So that's what intrigued me. Um, and I started seeing this pattern over and over and over again. And that's when I coined the term, the upper limit problem. And I'm pleased to see somebody tells me it has its own hashtag now on all the social media and things like that. So uh, blessings to you all out there in the social media world. Um, but the upper limit problem can be as subtle as a worry thought. You're in fact, that's one of the first things I noticed uh, in my own life. I was here in my little town of Ojai, California, 10,000 people. There is a wonderful jewelry store that has handmade jewelry. And um, Ojai, if you don't know about it, is a town populated by rich former hippies. And because everybody that makes good in Hollywood, they buy a place in Santa Barbara or Ojai. Uh, so our town is uh, loaded with lots of creative, creative type people who buy unusual art objects and things like that. So 
picture me walking along and I was feeling really good one day. I was going downtown and I was going to do some um, shopping, including buying something for my wife's birthday. And I was jogging down the street and Saturday afternoon and I looked to my left and there was the jewelry store and there was this gorgeous window of handmade rings and earrings and necklaces. And I just paused to look at the beauty and thinking about what an amazing thing it is for a human being to take the hundreds of hours to do something like that with a, and so I was celebrating that was what was going on. Then I started walking down the street again. Within seconds, I was starting thinking about all the pain and misery in the world. And I had some flashbacks of memories of being in India and, you know, people reaching for me with a begging bowl with their eyes pleading. So within a few seconds, I went from celebrating the beauty of life, the creativity of life, the genius of life, to the misery of life. Well, what could cause that? That's the upper limit problem in action. I obviously, some part of me unconsciously didn't feel I was entitled to feel good for more than 15 seconds at a time. <laughs> I later found that 15 seconds is a long time. Most people don't allow themselves to feel good for a split second before they do something that brings themselves back down. So bottom line, we're all in the spiritual and psychological and life business of increasing our ability to feel good for longer and longer periods of time. And one way to do that in your nine to five world is to start figuring out what you love to do and doing more and more of that. Here we start people with 10 minutes a day. Everybody can set aside 10 minutes a day for their genius. Put it in your calendar. I implore all of you that are listening and watching, put it in your calendar that tomorrow from 9.20 to 9.30, I'm just going to focus on my genius. It starts with that bold little move, but it's a huge move because what it is, is saying yes to your genius and celebrating it, if only for 10 seconds, but I mean 10 minutes, but start with 10 seconds and then work up from there. You know, it's so interesting because it's like you've got to acclimatize to feeling good. I think about I don't climb mountains, but I think about those that climb mountains and, you know, you hit a new altitude or a new summit. You've got to kind of acclimatize because the air is a little thin. And that's what you're saying to do is like acclimatize. It just sounds so funny, right? Acclimatize to feeling good and allowing yourself to feel good. So, Gay, when was the last time you hit the upper limit? What was the most recent time you hit an upper limit? Well, I innocently went out at the end of a rainy day to open the cover of my pool, which involves stepping over a little concrete curb and reaching down and pushing a button. Okay, so I'd done it thousands of times before. On this particular day, I failed to notice, since it had just rained, that this concrete curb was very slick and I slipped and went straight down on it and broke my femur in five places and I'm now equipped several months later I'm now equipped 
with a metal, a titanium rod down my femur, uh, a metal plate down my femur, six three-inch bolts at various places in my femur. So I'm a walking bionic man now. You should see me trying to get through airport security now. You know, I make every button light up on the screen. But how is that? So, so I know someone's listening, Gay, and they're saying, but that's not an upper limit. That was an accident. Like that just was something that happened. Are you saying that that's an upper limit that you hit? Yeah. Uh, just behaviorally, I went from feeling great one moment to feeling in misery the next moment by a moment of not paying attention. Oh, fascinating. So that's how it is. Okay, I want to go to page 83 here. The art of getting beyond our upper limit problem has a lot to do, and this is what you've been talking about, with creating space within us to feel and appreciate natural good feelings. Now, this is important if you're listening. By natural, Gay says, I mean good feelings that are not induced by alcohol, sugar, and other short-term fixes. Yes. Can you say more about that, about because some people may be always leaning towards something external outside of them to have what they feel would have them feel good for longer. But that's not what you're talking about. No, I'm talking about um, like right now in my own body, as I tune in, I feel a streaming, easeful sense of flow in my body. And it feels good. And I use that as a barometer. If I stop feeling that for a tenth of a second, I say, hmm, what did I do? Did I just say something that wasn't exactly true? Or am I overlooking something? In you know, so I use my body, then the good feeling in my body as my barometer. And I encourage everybody to do that. But it starts with learning how to feel good for longer and longer periods of time. So everybody that's watching and listening this, I can guarantee you that if you tune in now, as I encourage you to do, you will find some places in your body that feel good and some that don't feel as good. And so rather than focusing on the ones that don't feel as good, focus on nurturing the natural good feeling you already have in your body and then as that takes over and becomes the dominant field in your body, begin to notice when that disappears because it's an exquisite tool to use is uh, what stops your flow of good feeling? Is it something you put in your mouth? Oh, I'm feeling so good. I think I'll, I'll eat that whole pint of ice cream I just bought. You know, that... <laughs> Actually, that was my first upper limit problem, by the way. I'd been obese all of my life up until age 24. And one day I had a revolution. Wait a minute. I can't wait around for medical science to figure out what's wrong, why my glands are upside or, you know, why my thyroid and my pituitary don't work. I'm just going to take responsibility for it myself, for creating the body I want to have. Uh, by the way, today I weigh about 180 pounds. I'm six feet tall. So if you looked at me, you'd say, you know, there's a athletic looking old guy. And uh, I am. I work out three days a week at the gym and do a lot of other physical things. Uh, not as much since I broke my leg, but uh, I'm getting back into it 
now for the last few months. So um, at that time, I weighed more than 300 pounds at age 24. And so I had this gigantic moment of revolution, of revolutionary insight, where it was like suddenly the lights got turned on in places in my body that had been dark before. I could see how much anger I was carrying up in my shoulders. I could see how much sorrow and sadness I was carrying down in my chest. And by smoking two or three packs of Marlboros a day, I wasn't helping get in touch with that sadness very much either. You know, I was trying to stay away from that sadness. So down in my belly, I could feel all this knots of fear. And I down at the bottom of it, though, I could see that I had this pure consciousness in me that was just being. It wasn't doing anything. It was just my gift as a result of being human is having this vast field of pure consciousness that was way deeper than my feelings or my thoughts or my opinions or anything like that. And everybody has that. And I realized in that moment that that was my true home. And as I was coming out of that experience, which only lasted a couple of minutes, that turning on the light experience, as the darkness began to descend again, I realized, oh, no, I still want a cigarette or, oh, I still want a cheeseburger. You know, but I made this decision. I made a vow, which I've kept to this day, which is I vow to make choices with my food and every other choice that choose in favor of exposing and opening me more to that pure consciousness. I didn't call it genius at the time, but that's really what it is, that pure source of creativity that all of us have within us. And, you know, I've talked about this all over the world. I think we've been around the world some like 33 times now in our teaching our seminars and that kind of thing. And no matter where I go, everybody has this problem. If you go to Sweden, you very quickly learn the word logum, which is an important concept to Swedes, which is don't be too much, don't be too little. Stay right in the center. Conform to the norm. You won't get yourself in trouble either way. If you go to Australia, one of the first things you'll learn is the tall poppy. Don't be the tall poppy. They have what we now call the tall poppy syndrome, which is don't be the poppy that sticks its head around out of the others because you're the one that gets cut first. And Australians have a distinctive movement that they do when they talk about the tall poppy syndrome. Uh, so everywhere you go, people are feeling limited. What the big leap is about is showing you precisely where those limits are, showing you what the limiting beliefs are that keep creating the upper limit over and over yeah. and showing you what the fears are that under, are underneath the whole thing. Oh, Gay, okay. it's so true. Um, you know, and one of the things is also just makes me think of environment too. Like once you start to become aware of this and you're like, okay, I want to live in my zone of genius. I'm going to do the 10 minutes a day and I'm going to extend the time that I feel good. But your external environment hasn't changed. So your work, your friendships, people that you spend the most time with that are used to seeing you in a different way. And so 
How do you manage that piece of it when you're starting to become aware of this and you're kind of transitioning, but your external environment is the same? It's the same people. Well, you know, the old joke, a person in New York asked the cop, hey, which way to, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? And the cop says, practice, practice, practice. Well, <laughs> growing your genius zone is a practice. It's not something you do and forget. It's something that you open up a tiny window of, and then you say, oh, that's what I love to do. And then you begin to do that more and more and more. And I don't want you to feel bad for not contacting your genius zone. Nobody's ever given instructions to you on how to do it. I never got them. I had to find it out by the seat of my pants. And so, um, but that's the value of folks like me. You know, I, it took me 30 years to write the book, but now because I wrote the book, you don't have to go through the 30 years part. You can just jump in on the, the uh, final end of the learning curve there. And so at some point, though, every creative person, every person that's listening to this podcast or watching this podcast has to make a decision. Am I going to commit to my genius or am I going to continue just to live in my excellence zone? You know, the excellence zone, there's nothing wrong with it. It's you're doing stuff you like to do and you're getting good feedback and you're making good money doing it. The only problem is, and I've seen this problem up close now, I think we've worked with close to 1,500 executives. I've seen this problem so many times with gifted people is they have a gnawing inside that they're not getting to express their genius. Many of them aren't even aware of that gnawing feeling. But almost everybody that's been succeeding in their genius zone for a while thinks, oh boy, if I could just dot, 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 I'd spend more of my time doing dot, dot, dot. You know, and, uh, you know, I, I was walking down the hall with a CEO of a very big corporation, you know, 100,000 person organization. And I was talking to him about the value of taking 10 minutes a day to focus on your genius, starting there. And he said, what, what would that look like? And I said, it would be going in your office and turning off your phone or whatever you need to do to create pulling down the blinds or whatever, and going inside for 10 minutes. It could be as simple as something we do uh, here at the Hendricks Institute, which is going inside and simply saying, hmm, what do I most love to do? And then take three easy breaths. So in other words, we plant the seed question, what we call the wonder question. And then we take three easy breaths to let things just manifest and create an open feel where you're not coming in with all your other thoughts right away, or you're not saying, oh, that's impossible or anything else. You're just breathing and culturing your nervous system to longer and longer periods of feeling good. Start with three breaths of good feeling and watch what builds from there. As you said that, Gay, I closed my eyes and I asked myself that. And the answer for me was this. And I had tears kind of come to my eyes as I thought, I am doing it. I'm in it right now with you in this conversation. I want to thank you, Gay. The book, 
is the big leap. We will. Oh, also. Oh, I need to uh, do a little yes. show and tell here. Please. This is a book you can't buy yet, but you can February 15th. Okay. It's day at a time book of the big leap where you have 366 days, 366 because this is a leap year, but three, and you don't have to start it on January 1st. You just start it on day one and you work through it for a year and culture your nervous system to bigger and bigger leaps. Well, we're going to have the link for people to purchase that book for people to find out about you in our show notes. Gay, honestly, there were things I still wanted to talk about. So I'm just going to ask you, can we do this again? Absolutely. Anytime. I loved our conversation. This was such a highlight for me. I mean, you know, there's nothing like getting two people that are in their zone of genius together. I I agree. And um, I you know, it's something that you just naturally want to share. And yeah. I started first sharing it with my wife, Katie, but then we wanted to share it with more and more people. And they were sharing it with millions of people. So it's really fun to do to see an idea like this grow and grow and grow. Thank you so much, Gay. You're welcome. Thank you. So right now, Gay, I would love for my clients to please um, turn on your video. And we've had we and I'm aware of time. So we've got to wrap up at about five minutes to the hour so that Gay's lovely wife can come in and take over the studio so she can be in her zone of genius. That's right. She teaches a course every morning at I mean, every Monday morning at 9 a.m. sharp and here in our time. And so uh, I'll uh, remove myself at five till to make room for her genius. Oh, so first, we have a question from Catherine Marr. Catherine, please ask your question. Oh, you can't unmute yourself, can you? Okay, hang on here. We uh, we wanted to make sure that we were not... Oh, you got it. Perfect. Thank you, Charmaine. Thank you. Hi. Um, pleasure to meet you. I first discovered your book 15 years ago. Uh, when a friend, an entrepreneur, gifted to me when I went on my own entrepreneurial journey. And then Hannah, when I started working with her three years ago, also gifted it to me. Um, and I've read it many times. I have the audiobook, So thank you. It's Oh, uh, you're very welcome. Incredible. I've gifted it to others. And um, you're obviously in your genius and you're sharing your genius. Um, so excuse me. Thank you. Uh, you touched on this a little bit. But my question is, when you know the work thanks to you and thanks to Hannah and you catch yourself in the moment. So not a physical upper limit, um, but when you catch yourself reaching more of a psychological, emotional upper limit um, and you touched on, you know, taking a pause, three deep breaths. But if there's something where you feel your thoughts or your actions might potentially self-sabotage and you know, you have the awareness, oh, I'm at an upper limit. Do you have anything else um, in that moment where you can pause and reframe? Yes. One step that people often overlook is get your consciousness down into your belly and feel what you're afraid of. Mm. Every time an upper limit occurs, it's like a balloon hits to fear. And you see the balloon on the surface, but look down to where the balloon is tied and you'll see it's tied to something you're being afraid of at yeah. the time. And so check out some 
I'm afraid, I'm afraid. Check out some fear statements and get down into it in your body. There's no substitute for locating feelings in your body because then they become not big mysterious things, but they become a place in your body where you're sensing something. And if you know that your neck and shoulders light up when you're angry and you note that your chest feels cloudy and constricted when you're sad or you feel a lump in your throat, if you know that you feel butterflies and a tight belly, those are really useful things because, you know, I always say the greatest journey every human being ever make ever makes is 12 inches from here ah, down to here. You know, from getting out of the judgments of your mind to just, oh, I'm feeling sad, not I'm feeling sad and that's a bad thing to feel or anything like that. Just, oh, this is what is. And learning how to experience that and ultimately your goal, if I may jump in with the running the clock forward for a few centuries, our goal is to learn to love things that are unlovable in ourself. If you can find the places in yourself that you find unlovable and grow your ability to love those things, uh, it, it awakens such amazing a mass of energy and space in yourself. Love, love is the one thing that can contain its opposite. There are no other things because as an example, you can learn to love the unlovable in yourself. Love is bigger than the unlovable. And you have to prove that to yourself, though. You can't take some old guy in California saying it, because there probably every other old guy in California will say something like this. Um, by the way, what part of the world are you in today? Toronto. Canada. Oh, you're in Toronto. What's that? Okay, great. Wonderful place. Um, so that's my first thought about that. And does that satisfy the question answer and asking place in yourself or is there some other element of it? No, that's beautiful. Very helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Gay. I'm going to bring up Kieran next to add to ask her question. Oh, Kieran, sorry. Can, let me see. Are you able to unmute yourself now? Perfect. Hello, Alan, Gay, and Hannah. Thank you so much both for sharing your incredible insight this morning. Um, I have a question that I wasn't expecting to have this morning. Um, so, Gay, I am a lawyer and I practice family law. Um, I trained as a family law mediator just, you know, last year, and I've been drawn to mediation since I was a kid. I haven't started conducting mediations yet. But on my drive to work this morning, I had a really terrifying realization for myself because I realized that being a family lawyer in the traditional sense is in my zone of excellence. And mm. I have had that gnawing feeling that you talked about, which is why I joined in a community in the first place. But my question for you is, now what? What do I do with this information? Oh, beautiful question. First of all, Let's celebrate the wonder question in that. Here we call them wonder questions because they're questions that I really want to know and I really don't know 
the answer to. All right. So first of all, blessings upon you for coming upon that awareness, however you got it. Um, because every person who's really creative has to come upon that. And the fact that you came across that at a young age is speaks well for the growth of your consciousness because you've got an immense amount of time to develop it. In um, developmental psychology, we say in your 20s, your job is to experiment. In your 30s, you find your life. In your 40s, you build your life. And in your 50s, you come to enjoy your life. Not that you shouldn't enjoy it all along, but most people don't until they get through the of their 30s and 40s, don't get to that place of ease and, ah, I've made a little difference in the world. Mm, I've got a few of the wrinkles out of my belly. Mm, my kids are well fed. Mm, you know, so, but where you are in your growth is really in the process of doing the work of your 30s and your 40s, which is finding your life and building your life. And so blessings upon you for finding that little gnawing sense, because I can tell you from personal experience that a lot of people don't find that until, oh my gosh, I'm 58 years old and I realize I'm in the wrong career. <laughs> you know, that that's, uh, I've worked with lots of people like that and there there can be a sense of panic. If you're feeling that sense of panic, take a breath, take a nice easy breath ah, and welcome it. Okay, so the instructions are in what I just asked you to do, which is welcome it, breathe on it, celebrate it, celebrate that gnawing feeling. Above all, don't repress it, don't squeeze it down. That's one of the arts of human beings is to let our feelings blossom and feel and celebrate them, whether they're anger or sadness. Oftentimes we rush into anger, uh, rush into action about them. So celebrating the part of yourself that doesn't know. I don't know if you've ever read the wonderful passage from the great uh, poet Rainer Maria Rilke. Uh, it's uh, his advice to a young poet, a young poet asked him advice and he wrote letters to that person and find it. It's a beautiful quote, but I'll give you the gist of it, which is learn to love the questions. Don't get so busy with the answers. Don't put pressure on yourself. Just celebrate the questions that you have because he said, you wake up in six months or a year and you realize that you've answered the questions with the life you're living. That is so true, but you really have to experience it to believe what I'm talking about. Celebrate the questions. Find the, the big burning questions in you and make them unburn by letting yourself celebrate them. As E.E. E. Cummings, our other poet, said, it's always the beautiful question that gets the beautiful answer. So to allow yourself to breathe and be alive with your questions that's your sacred task right now. And I'm glad that you've joined a community like Henna's that gives you the opportunity to celebrate those kinds of things. Thank you. My oh. pleasure.
thank you so much, Gay. That was so beautiful. You know, I love how we all receive our answers and other people's questions as well. And I know that we only had time for a few questions today, but you answered other people got what they needed from your answer to those questions. Some things that really stay with me is love can contain its opposite and to and to be in the question as well. Because sometimes I think what happens is we have this realization like Kieran had, then there can be um, fear that comes with it. And then also, which we didn't get into, but we are when we're going to when we speak next time. We start to maybe feel pressure of time. Like, I have to now figure out what I'm going to do with this. Love to come back on sometime and do a whole segment on Einstein time because that oh, will take 100%. so much stress out of your life. Yes, yes. Uh, just show me with um, a, show me with a reaction on the screen if you would like Gay to come back and talk about Einstein time. Yes, I love it. Lots of thumbs ups and hearts because... I'm just going to say one thing just to tease it, and then uh, we will we will end this call. We're doing great. Um, let me just find it here because it's the most beautiful, just something that I was like, yeah, we need to have a full session on this. When you make the shift to Einstein time, so here's a teaser, people. You experience a major surge in your productivity, creative, creativity, and enjoyment. The shift takes place the moment you embrace one profoundly simple truth. You guys ready for it? I don't know if you're ready. I don't know if you can handle this. You're where time comes from. And that's our time for today. <laughs> and, and listen, here's what we're going to do. I've, I'm, I'm making decisions. I'm making decisions, Gay. We're going to purchase for everybody when Gay's book comes out, the new the new book on Feb 15th, we're going to get it for our community. And then Gay, you're going to come if you if we could be so blessed by your presence and um we'll launch the book together. You'll launch the book with our community. Can we arrange that? Yes, uh you probably know by now my brilliant assistant Margaret who handles Margaret. all my bookings and uh bless her heart. Uh, she's been with us for so many years, and I worship her. She keeps our lives so beautifully organized. Uh, but get in touch with Margaret. She handles everything, and uh, we'll make it happen. Thank you so much, Gay. Well, Wishing by, you by the way, this is yes. a good time of day for me because it's before I get into all the stuff I get into during the day. Look. This is a good time of day for me. The we're all we also do six a.m. calls. We know we're in Eastern. You're in Pacific. Thank you, Gay. Thank you so much. So much love for you. Thank you, and we will talk soon. Thank you. Love you. Bye. Bye-bye.